friends, if we haven't met, my name is Adam, and it's my joy to be a senior pastor here at our church. I will say, if you can bear with me a little bit today, I've got uh, a little bit under the weather, uh, but it's my sacred duty as a man to react disproportionately to very common symptoms. <laughs> so if, if you can help me uh, push through the man flu this morning, uh, we'll be in good shape. You guys didn't know where I was going with that, did you? Uh, have you seen those progressive commercials with Dr. Rick? I just love these. They're so funny. Uh, yeah, just give it up for Dr. Rick, sure. Man, I tell people, I tell people all the time, I have never met folks who love coming to church more than 1045 at our church. <laughs> Dr. Rick, he helps you from, he's a parental life coach, so he helps try and prevent you from turning into your parents. And uh, I have some good buddies who are so earnest, they actually don't like these commercials because your parents are wise. Dustin's giving me the, the that's right. But these are hilarious because they're so true, right? And sometimes it's like, ooh, a little, ooh, a little too close to home. I went with a buddy, uh, several buddies last week to the Chiefs game. And have you seen the, the progressive commercial where they're all in the parking lot? Like me and my buddy really did calculate how much we thought the Chiefs made on parking. Uh, and when we were just like, oh, this is too much. We got to quit. Uh, and this happens all the time. And I think no matter what age you are, there's, there's probably times where stuff comes out of your mouth and it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm turning, I've turned into my, my, my mom or my dad or somebody. You know, one of those for me is this happens mostly when I'm talking to my kids. And the other day I just said, tell me about your thought process on that, which is like one of my dad's favorite lines and his most condescending also. Uh, or, or, you know, I think a lot of kids get into the phase where they ask why. And you know where I'm going with this. Because in response to the question why from one of my children, out of my mouth just comes because I said so. And then I almost like, it was like I turned into Mr. Hyde or something. I just was like, what have I become? No, I'm my parents. Because I said so. Mm. Obey, because I said so. I would guess most parents have said this in exasperation at some point. But it points to the truth. A good parent knows better than their kid. And the child should obey for their own good even though sometimes they don't want to. And the same principle holds true for us as God's children. Obedience, even though it's not my personal favorite thing, and several of you probably share that, I like to be self-determining. Obedience doesn't always feel great, but it's a very good thing. And obedience and following Jesus, they go hand in hand. You can't love Jesus as your Savior and not obey him as your Lord. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, anyone who loves me will obey my command. They will obey my teaching. So this morning we're going to look at obedience to Jesus' teaching around forgiveness. And we're in the second week of our series, The Journey of Forgiveness. I believe part of the journey every Christian goes on is going from being forgiven by God to forgiving others. That's not an easy journey. And so these three weeks are born out of my own experience, honestly, with this story that we're going to read. And, and I've, I've, I think there's three phases that we go through on this journey to forgiveness. The first one is vengeance. When someone has hurt us and we want to see them get paid back. We want to see them suffer for how they've made us suffer. 
So we talked about that last week if you missed it. And then this week we're going to talk about obedience. When Jesus says we need to forgive those who have hurt us, what do we do with that? How do we actually do that? How do we obey Jesus' command? That's what we're going to talk about today. Then next week we'll talk about transcendence. So we go from desiring vengeance, and we talked about how payback doesn't pay. This week, we'll see that obedience comes at a cost. And next week, we'll look at what it, what it takes to rise above the desire for vengeance and actually, get, and even obedience, and actually get to the place where we want to follow Jesus' command and we're loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us instead of desiring vengeance. What I hope we'll discover today as we study God's word together is that forgiveness is releasing your right to retribution and that forgiveness comes with a big cost. So how many times should we forgive someone? Well, it's a great question and we're fortunate that one of Jesus' closest followers asked him this. We can read about it in the New Testament in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? I think Peter's kind of trying to set some expectations here. And I respect this. Like, I don't know if anyone else in college, they're, if, they're, if their professor had an attendance policy, how many days can I miss without being uh, penalized? That's how many I would miss. Peter's saying, how many times do I need to forgive here? Seven? In, in Peter's mind, he was probably being pretty generous because in the Jewish custom, you would forgive someone who sinned against you three times. So Peter doubles it and adds one. He's probably feeling pretty good about himself, that he, like he's going to pass the Jesus ACT. <laughs> and then Jesus does what he always does, and that's blow our intuition and our instincts out of the water. This is what Jesus says in response to Peter's question, how often should I forgive? Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you, not, 70, not seven times, but 77 times. Now when Jesus says 77 times, he doesn't mean that on the 78th time, your friends finally cross the line, right? He's using hyperbole. I don't know if, you, if maybe you've heard this or said this, or maybe your grandkids have said like, when something's really funny, has anyone ever said to you, I literally died? And it's like, well, no, you didn't. You didn't literally die. They, they, they meant it was really funny. Similarly, Jesus is using hyperbole. There could also be a reference to Genesis 4. I thought this was really powerful. Uh, a man in Genesis named Lamech says that he will avenge himself 77 times if he's attacked. Forgiveness, then, is the opposite of vengeance. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we, we must obey his command to forgive. And in doing so, we become the polar opposite of Lamech. We become people following after Jesus. So how many times should you forgive? Jesus' answer is essentially infinity. And then he launches into a story that I find Super annoying because it's very hard. Verses 23 through 25. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, 
the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So here's something we know to be true, that actions have consequences. And that you rack up a debt and eventually the bill comes due. 10,000 talents was more than a lifetime of wages. Some scholars estimate it could have been as much in our terms, modern, uh, in modern society, as $100 million. Yeah. Uh, one translation says talents, that was a unit of monetary measurement. The scripture we read earlier used the, used the word translation, bags of gold. I mean, this is just a ton of money. Again, Jesus is wanting us to, to understand this is an astronomical figure. He's again using hyperbole, that this man had more debt than he could ever repay in a lifetime. It's also telling that the king had the man's family sold, because that was not a Jewish practice. They abhorred the, the practice of selling people into slavery to repay debt. And so it's interesting that the master here is depicted as a Gentile or someone who wasn't Jewish. Still, the servant has to make good on his debt, because that's reality. That's the way the world works. The servant knew all of this. He knew the rules. And he knew that when he racked up the debt, eventually it would come due. And so he pleads with the king for mercy. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. When we read that the king canceled the debt, the Greek word being used for canceled is a fakin, which means forgive. And that can be defined as to absolve from payment or to pardon. And so the servant is pardoned a great debt. He's absolved from having to pay it back. And so now we see that forgiveness has a cost. What's the cliche that goes along with forgiveness? Forgive and forgive and forget. I don't want to be crass, but forgive and forget, like I think that's I think that's dumb. I don't think it's true. Forgive and forget. Tell that to the king who's out $100 million. Right? I mean, it, forgiveness comes at a great cost. It, forgiveness doesn't mean pretending nothing ever happened. I'll oh, just forget it. And because to do so, to forget, would degrade the, the, the act of forgiveness. Because of the king's mercy, he would absorb the cost of his servant's error in place of the servant and the servant's family. And so the king's forgiveness comes at an incredibly steep price. 10,000 bags of gold, $100 million, more than a lifetime's wages. And so we don't forgive and forget what happened. We forgive in spite of what happened. So forgiveness is releasing our right to retribution. When the king forgave the debt, the man was set free from paying it back from a lifetime in prison for him and his family. The king released the servant by canceling his debt and letting him go free. Releasing his right to see the man pay him back for what he owed. Now, if we end the story here, happy ending, great, great, warm and fuzzy, right? But that's not what happens. Our guy, the servant who owed all this money, he decides to get cute, doesn't he? Verses 28 through 30. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Does that sound familiar? 
That sounds like what he said to the other dude. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. This guy was just forgiven 10,000 talents, more than a lifetime's wages. And he is the person who owes him a couple hundred denarii thrown in jail. Uh, a denarii was a day's wages. So 100 days wages actually was conceivable to be paid back. So that's an interesting thing. Jesus is, of course, wanting us to understand the massive difference between the debt that was forgiven, the one servant, and the incredibly small debt in comparison he wants to have paid back and see this other man punished. Biblical scholar A.R.S. Kennedy gives us an incredible visual to understand the disparity in the debt between these two different people between the servant in comparison to the debt he's trying to collect. So let's think of the money in dimes. A hundred denarii stacked up in dimes you could fit in one pocket. A 10,000 talent debt, if it was in dimes, would take an army of 8,600 carriers to carry it, each carrying a sack of, of dimes 60 pounds in weight. 8,600 people each carrying a 60-pound sack of dimes. If you were to stretch them out a yard apart, the line of these people would be five miles long. So that's the 10,000 talent debt versus the 100 denarii, which you could fit in your pocket. Jesus is trying to show us the massive disparity between the debt that we owe God and the debt that others owe us. When the unforgiving servant said to the king, be patient with me and I will pay back everything, the king took pity on him. But when that same phrase is uttered by someone who owes him a laughably small amount of money in comparison, the servant is choking him and demanding he be paid back and he has him thrown into jail. The servant who received mercy was unwilling to forgive a debt. This is significant. See, forgiveness would still have a cost involved. Just as there was a something owed to the king, the servant was owed money, but he was unwilling to do the same. He was unwilling to forgive an incredibly small debt in comparison. Now, do you ever notice that? That we do the same thing? That we tend to want mercy for us, but justice for other people? I think there's a phrase called rules for thee, but not for me. It sounds like it's from the book of Proverbs, but it's not. So I think that an important question we need to ask ourselves, I wanted to put this at the end of last week, but I'm trying to keep these nice and neat, these three weeks. Do we want the same standard we desire for other people to be used on us? Verses 30 through 34. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master turned him over again to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. So by accepting the king's forgiveness but refusing to grant any, the servant paid a much higher price than the hundred denarii he was owed. 
I think this is significant for us as well. Because the same thing happens. When we refuse to forgive, we end up putting ourselves in a prison of anger and bitterness. We wind up back in jail, but it's our own doing. And then meanwhile, we expect God to forgive us much greater debts as we seek instead payments of smaller debts owed to us. We're going to say this at the, as a part of communion, but in the Methodist church, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught. We say, forgive us our trespasses. There's other Christian traditions, and some of you may be from one, where, where they'll say, forgive us our debts as we forgive those with debts against us. thought about subbing that in today. Maybe we can do a little of both. And so here's what makes, the, this is all what makes the last verse of Jesus' parable so haunting. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now I think on, on, from a certain angle, so the, the master has, forgives this huge debt, lets the guy go, and then when he finds out he doesn't forgive his fellow servant, a very small debt by comparison, it says in his anger the master had him thrown back in jail. So is the, is the, is the master actually being vengeful? Maybe, in a way, but there's limits to every analogy, right? Like, we certainly wouldn't imagine God to be a Gentile slave owner selling people off into slavery, children of this guy that owes them a lot of money. That's not an image we would associate with God. The point that Jesus wants us to see is that God has forgiven us so much in comparison that we should forgive others. I think part of what makes forgiveness so hard is, is we have to be clear about our definitions of, of these things. So forgiveness is releasing your right to retribution. You are letting go of your desire for vengeance, which we talked about last week. That person, you're no longer wanting them to suffer as they've made you suffer. That's forgiveness. You're releasing your right of payback. That's different than reconciliation. Reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship. That's between two parties. Forgiveness only takes one party, you. We can forgive regardless of the other person's behavior. But to reconcile, it takes two people aligning. And I I think it'd be pretty hard to reconcile with somebody who doesn't think they did anything wrong. Right? Like if the person has expressed no remorse, isn't sorry, and would do this terrible thing again, why would you sign up for that? And so sometimes Christians conflate forgiveness. We, we get a little forgive and forget in there. Forgiveness doesn't mean pretending nothing ever happened. And forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness isn't about the other person at all. It's about you releasing your right to retribution. Letting go of that desire to see that other person suffer as they have made you suffer. It's you releasing the burden of vengeance to God. And it only takes one person, and that's you. I'll say it again. Forgiveness doesn't mean pretending nothing ever happened. And forgiving does not go hand in hand with forgetting because that cheapens the high cost of forgiveness. 
So when we read the story of Jesus, I find it incredibly convicting. And in this whole series, I'm I'm trying to thread a needle because I want to talk about stories from my life that that I found this to be true, but I also don't want to air my family's dirty laundry. I need to be, I need to honor my own family as well. So all I'll say for now is, is that I have found these three phases, vengeance, forgiveness, uh, excuse me, vengeance, obedience, and transcendence to have been true in my life. And there was a time in my life where a very close relationship I had in my family, we didn't speak for 10 years, which when you're in your 20s is like half your life. And so I also want to suggest that this is, this is not a process that, that, that takes place overnight. But here, here's what I found is, you know, last week I talked about the red truck phase where of vengeance, where we wouldn't mind if maybe a red truck came along and took out this person that's hurt us so much. Well, this phase of obedience, I, I, I call the roll your eyes phase. Because you read the story from Jesus and you're like, okay, Jesus, all right. You know, in, in obedience can feel like a lesser than aspect of Christianity. But what I want to show you is that being obedient, doing something even when you don't feel like it, is a very faithful response. And I think it represents massive growth in Christian maturity. So in the journey of forgiveness, we have three phases. And I'm trying to give you a model for getting closer to being obedient to Jesus. So let's put it up here. This is my incredibly sophisticated Microsoft Word chart. You know, I love my charts. See, forgiveness is really only required when you're going against your desire. So what does obedience look like? Obedience is aligning our desires and actions with God's. And when we don't desire something God wants for us or God commands us, that's where obedience fills in the gap. And so on top is is kind of thinking through our different desires. Do we or don't we want to forgive? And on the bottom is, is our actions. Have we forgiven? Jesus says, from your heart. So have we forgiven this person from our heart and or communicated that to this person? And so this first stop is we don't want to forgive and we don't do it. Well, that takes zero obedience. That's a place we may find ourselves often. Uh, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. We're in that place where we still want that person to suffer as they have made us suffer. A line from Dr. Phil, not Dr. Rick, but Dr. Phil, my dad would say a lot is, well, how's that working out for you, right? So we talked about that last week. Then we, we might come to the place where we read this incredibly convicting story of Jesus or we hear a sermon by a very stuffy but, but, but still functional pastor and, and we might think, okay, maybe, maybe I do want to forgive. And you, and you kind of you start thinking about it in your brain that maybe you do want to do it, but then you don't actually do it. See, sometimes our brains fool us because we, we conflate talking about doing something with actually doing it. We'll all experience this in January when we make a resolution. Right? And we tell, we tell our friends, oh, I'm going to do this this year. I'm going to do this. Well, then we don't actually do it. So that's not to be confused with obedience because our behavior hasn't changed at all. So 
thinking about doing it or maybe wanting to, but not actually doing it, you're, you, that's, that's, that's a little better than not wanting to, but you're still not being obedient. It's this third section that I think obedience actually comes in, where we don't want to do it, but we do so anyway because Jesus tells us to. Lord, I forgive them from my heart. I give it over to you. Maybe even saying the words to somebody, I forgive you. You actually do it. What I'm trying to show you is that sometimes we think, well, if I don't want to, I must not be very far along or I must, I must still be missing it, what Jesus wants for me. I'm trying to say that obedience is an incredibly faithful step. You're 75% there. Look how far you've come. I'm trying to give you good news that if you don't feel like it, but you still do it, that's an incredibly faithful response and that represents massive Christian growth. In the same breath, I'm trying to tell you that I have found this to not take place overnight. That it takes a cumulative lifetime of following. That's why we, that's why we worship. That's why we study the scriptures. That's why we pray. That's why, that's why we use what, what John Wesley called the means of grace. We give God opportunities to help mold and shape our hearts. Because I have found anyway that it's not, it's not instant. And so if you can get to the place where you, know, you don't actually want to forgive someone, but you do anyway, because who wants to, who wants to be like that servant? I don't want to be like that dude. That that's actually a much better place to be than further back down the line. We read the parable of the unmerciful servant and it's haunting. And we think, okay, Jesus, whatever. And so we forgive, not because we want to, but out of obedience. That represents massive progress. Next week, we're going to talk about that fourth section, what I call transcendence, where we rise above the desire for vengeance. Because Jesus tells us other annoying things like you need to love your enemies and actually pray for the people who persecute you. And you might think, well, Jesus, that's why they're called my enemy. So how do we actually do that? We rise above this desire for vengeance, and we, we grow closer to Christ who said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So we'll talk about the radical forgiveness of Jesus next week as well. But I wanted somebody to tell you it's not a hop, skip, and a jump from desiring vengeance to being obedient to Jesus, but it's a journey we all have to go on, friends, from being forgiven by God to forgiving others. And when we do it, even though we don't want to, that's Christian maturity. It takes a lifetime of following Jesus to make progress in this as the Holy Spirit enables us. And we come to the place where like, like a child thinks, oh, maybe my parents do know the best thing for me. We come to this place where we can think, maybe Jesus was right. And that we're obedient to him even when we don't feel like it because we have trust and confidence that he desires the best for us. And then ultimately, Jesus knows better than me. He knows that it's not a good place for me to be in a prison of bitterness of my own making. 
And Jesus knows that this desire for vengeance, and even if you get some small degree of it, won't actually heal you. And so our obedience to Jesus is submission to his love and wisdom, that his thoughts and ways are higher than our thoughts and ways. That's where we'll get to next week. Friends, there's a cost of forgiveness, giving up your right to retribution. It means you're going to miss out on the satisfaction of seeing them suffer like they've made you suffer. Jesus says in another place, before you become my disciple, you must count the cost. And part of the cost is giving up your right to revenge. It comes at a high cost, forgiveness does. It cost the king a fortune to forgive the servant's debt. But what we come to find out is the cost of unforgiveness is even higher because we wind up stuck in a prison of our own making, still arrested by vengeance. That's why we choose obedience to Jesus because as it turns out, Jesus knows best. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time and place where we have an appointment with you. God, I don't know uh, what we all bring in with us, what we've suffered, ways we've been betrayed, but I know that you do. And so in this moment, give us your grace Grace for when we're still in the vengeance mode and, and, and we give in to the several excellent reasons we have to be angry with people and to want to see them paid back for what they've done, for them to suffer as they made us suffer. God, help us to know that your desire for us is not to stay that, in that place that ultimately what's better for us and for the people that have harmed us is to release that debt, to forgive it. God, even when we don't feel like it, help mold our hearts after yours to come to the place where we can uncurl our hands from our grip on vengeance and see that you offer a better way. God, give us strength and perseverance for that long journey. The journey toward seeing other people as you see us. God, by your grace, may we be moving forward on the journey of being forgiven by you to forgiving others. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.